Welcome to Voices of Nature. I'm Bob Ludke, an advisor to Global Conservation Corps and the creator of the Voices of Nature podcast. Voices of Nature is dedicated to sharing the voices of innovative, passionate leaders committed to saving and protecting the world's most threatened natural resources. In today's episode, we are speaking with Greta Matos, someone with a truly diverse and rich background. Greta grew up on an organic farm, lived and worked in Asia, and in order to get away from the business as usual mindset, decided to go for a walk, all 2,180 miles of the Appalachian Trail that stretches from Georgia to Maine in the United States. Greta now lives in Chile, where she founded a consultancy to help companies become more sustainable and responsible in their operations. We will focus on one part of Greta's work today, her creation of Coracuda. Coracuda is an organization where Greta and her team work in partnership with their horses to craft authentic leadership and personal development experiences. As we learn more about Coracuda, we'll turn our conversation about nature on its head from previous episodes. As always, we'll explore what humans can and must do for nature. But we also will discuss what nature can do for us as human beings and how a closer relationship with nature makes us better people, better leaders, and better stewards of precious natural resources. With all that, Greta, welcome to Voices of Nature. Thank you, Bob. I'm so happy to be here today and to be chatting with you. So thank you for inviting me into this conversation. It's truly our pleasure. So I'm certain I did not do your background justice with my brief introduction. So please just, you know, take a few minutes, tell us a little bit more about yourself and really what kind of inspired you to have such a rich and interesting career that is so tied to all things nature. So I... Whenever I'm brought back into this question of how I've gotten to where I've been, it takes me to really what you had mentioned, my growing up on the farm um, and these threads of being in relationship with nature that were woven throughout my life from the very beginning. And so, so much of um, that time, my childhood, where we lived off of the land. Um, we grew our own food. We raised the animals that also sustained our family, built relationships with horses and the forests and the creeks. And so many aspects of nature supported in my own development that when I went off into the world of business, um, I didn't necessarily know how deeply interwoven the human relationship with nature would bring itself into um, my own learning and, and process in business, but it was inevitable. So when I went into supply chain and started working in China and started working in the world of, of global supply chains, it was only natural that I, I noticed and was affected by the impact that we were having on the planet doing business as usual. And so much of my, my personal relationship with nature has quietly guided the growth and development of my career, even though I, I wasn't always aware of it. Um, and so it was definitely what led me to, to pause after I confronted not knowing what to do with all the experience I had in business um, and how to reconcile our negative impacts as, as a species 
and, and drew me back into nature where I found resource and resilience and creativity again um, to go back into business and from a very different perspective, a hopeful perspective. And again, it's, it's felt like nature has been my companion all along the way, um, keeping me grounded, but also inspired to keep doing the work. You touched on so many really personally uh, inspiring points in that introduction, and I want to come back to a lot of those. But before we do that, you're the, you're the first person we've had on uh, the podcast from Chile, uh, and specifically the, the Patagonia region. So just tell us a little bit about the, the, the nature of your world and, and what the state of nature is like in, in the Patagonia region of Chile. Mm, it's quite a powerful place where I live. I'm surrounded by breathing volcanoes um, that actually I've lived through eruptions here. So that's a whole other story of being mentored by nature. <laughs> um, there, I'm also surrounded by old growth forests that are still intact. So we have, you know, 2000 year old Araucaria forests um, and Koiwe. There's a lot of free rivers. So undammed rivers still remain throughout this country quite a bit. And so we also have a lot of energy of free flowing rivers that has quite a powerful presence um, in a landscape that I don't think I, I was as sensitive to growing up in the U.S. where so many of our rivers were controlled. Um, and so living here, I feel much closer to the, the rebellious side of nature <laughs> um, because there's much less management of it. It's, it's much less managed by human hands. And so while it's, there are areas that are wild, I'm referring more to the essence of this claim itself. Um, and that influences the way in which we live too. We live very, very much in response to the elements as opposed to always trying to control them. <laughs> so what, what brought you to this amazing place? Why, why Chile? Yeah, the, the quickest way I could respond would be the gravitational pull um, of life. It wasn't all the things that everyone assumes. It wasn't family and it wasn't work. Um, but it was very much a spring in my, in my heart at a moment in my life when I was actually, you know, on a career projection that picked up this, um, for success in corporate America, but was leaving me quite starved for time in nature. Um, and a long ache to return to living in, in partnership with horses, which I'd grown up very close to. And so um, it was a little bit of a lot of, a lot of things that were, were just calling for a really big radical life shift. And so the idea of Patagonia and of Chile came literally to mind after a a session of yoga on my kitchen floor um, when I was living in San Francisco. And I felt this weight lift on my shoulders after several months of not knowing what, what change I needed, but knowing that I needed a change. Um, doing work that I was passionate about, but I could feel was exhausting me and, um, and not knowing kind of which direction to go next. 
And so when the idea of Chile came and I felt that weight lift, I went and I spoke with my partner and I asked him, what do you think about moving to Chile? <laughs> and, <laughs> and what if that's all we needed to know? And he said, sure. <laughs> and so we literally arrived with no plans other than to explore and to kind of feed our hearts and souls. And so we surfed and we, we climbed and we traveled through the country, just feeling our way into the, this place and feeling if there was resonance in our hearts, but also from the place calling us toward it. Um, and if we liked it, we'd stay. And if we didn't, we'd go. And, and that was seven years ago. So, so we, we did end up staying. I'm sure it's been a wonderful seven years. And so now let's turn a bit to your work and, and how, how have you and created a, a, frankly, a thriving business in, in Chile, um, advising companies on all sorts of issues regarding their supply chain, not just companies, but organizations. And then specifically your, your creation of Korokuda. Mm. Yeah. So it's funny because when I came, I, I always loved the work that I was doing in supply chain. I found it so such this, this core space where we had so much human potential to evolve and to redesign so many broken systems. And yet I, doing that work in the previous vehicle, in the existing vehicle, in kind of a very corporate setting, had just, as I mentioned, exhausted my spirit. And to be frank, I also just felt like it was often Groundhog Day. Um, so many conversations around sustainability versus where we were going and where what we were actually doing, aside from what we were saying we wanted to do. <laughs> so when I came to Chile, I didn't know that I would still continue my work in supply chain. Even though I was really passionate about it, um, I wasn't sure that that was the direction that I would keep going. And so living here and kind of allowing things to stay open, the work came back and it found me. Um, but it did so in a way that was quite different. And what was different was in my time here, I was able to reconnect with the work that um, I grew up doing, which was with horses. And through a lot of um, funny synchronicities, I ended up having a herd of seven horses. And when the, that herd formed, I started to piece together, they felt like stars in a constellation. <laughs> That's the best way I could describe it. Of this awareness of working so long with so many companies that had people who were passionate and wholehearted about wanting to have a positive impact on the planet through business. And yet being challenged with being able to authentically fulfill that intention because they kept running up against these business as usual barriers, essentially. And when I started to go deeper in the work with the horses and equine facilitated learning, which I can share a bit more about, but that work is wholly and entirely focused on authentic relationship and connecting with intention in a really authentic way, in a way where you're unwilling actually to disconnect from that intention. Um, in order to be more productive or in order to um, achieve something. 
And so the on relationship and this deeper sensory awareness and somatic relationship with people, with horses, with nature, it easily started to translate and connect in my mind to all of the work that I'd be doing on corporate strategy and sustainability um, and all of the kind of the, the breakdown and the, the points where I had seen leadership fail in that space was not so much because we didn't have the right solutions, but simply because the leaders in those spaces were running up against something that they personally weren't able to make the courageous and authentic decision that might be unpopular, but will actually lead to innovation within the organization and be better for the environment. So I don't know if that answers your question or it feels almost too nuanced, but it, it was this, this process that bubbled up from the way in which I was participating with the horses and with the environment here that again, then connected the dots to the consulting work. Yeah, so let's go deeper on that. And, and you've, you've really created a business around that concept, right? I mean, yeah. so explain to us, if, if I remember the term correctly, equine-assisted learning, is that right? So there's, it's referred to a lot of different ways, and it can mean different things too. But the way in which I usually work with it is equine-facilitated learning. And it's essentially a type of experiential learning where we work, um, we work with concepts. So we talk a bit about what's happening in the body, what happens when we're present with one another, and we start to connect more with a somatic awareness. So um, what sensations you're feeling moment to moment, when you're thinking certain things, what sensations are you feeling in your body? Where's the awareness in your body? Learning to track that awareness and then expanding that kind of listening practice so that it becomes what I refer to as almost bio-listening. You start to feel and pay attention to what's happening outside of your body. And again, how that's affecting, essentially how your presence is affecting what's happening around you. And the horses, where they come into this is essentially, they're this incredible mirroring um, presence where they're incredibly sensitive and constantly receiving information from the environment to which they respond. And so why they're so powerful with this work and why it's so powerful for human development and human learning is they provide us an immediate and non-judgmental feedback loop. So we actually are able to feel and witness, we can see the impact of our presence in a space by feeling the connection or the disconnection with the horse and by being able to read and work with the body language and the information that they're communicating to us, as well as how they're receiving us in the space. So are you saying that if, if I would come to Chile and I would ride on a horse with you. And if I was burned out, stressed, angry, the horse could actually sense that I was, that I had those emotions in me and would act differently than if I 
went and rode with you and I was just happy, lighthearted, just enjoying life. I mean, how, how does that, and, and then how does that translate into you working to kind of settle my emotions and, and translate that into being a better person, a better leader, what have you? So that's exactly a good example. And it also plays out in a lot of different ways as well, in that the horse generally is responding to the level of our awareness of what's going on in us. So if you do show up and you're stressed and you're thinking about 17 other things and you're not present, what that brings up for the horse is that you are not a safe leader because you're not present and you're not listening to your environment. And therefore you won't have or experience a level of relationship and connection with the horse that's based on trust. And so how that translates in a business setting is again, a leader comes into a room and they've got 17,000 things on their mind and they're not really present with the team. And with that lack of presence, being able to drop in authentically with the team, you have the same dynamic occurring where the team will go along with you, but you're not going to be moving forward with a foundation of trust in that relationship. And therefore, you're not going to be able to have this exchange of leadership between the team members. And so that's one of the, the dynamics that we work with. Um, this work we do, a lot of it we do on the ground, actually not even riding, but just with people near the horse in a round pen. And the horse has no ropes. And so the horse is purely responding to you without any, um, any guidance from us. And then when we're doing backcountry rides, which we only do in, in very, for very intentional groups, but when we do that work, one of the main themes that we work with is actually this fluid leadership exchange, which requires the human trust the horse to guide as well. And we practice this process of, of building trust and awareness in the skills and adaptability of every being that we're interacting with. Um, and so, so again, it, we practice with the horse and, but the relationship dynamics that we're practicing are completely transferable to then take into a team setting or into a strategy, a corporate strategy. Without naming names or going terribly deep into specifics, I mean, can you just give us an example of how you saw someone transform for the better, became a better leader through one of these journeys? Yeah. So it's always quite humbling for me to do this work. Um, one, because I don't control what the horse brings up in the round pen or what the horse brings forth for the person. Um, and so as someone who, you know, is facilitating and guiding a process, it's, it's always this, again, this experience that feels very, um, I want to use the word sacred because it is sacred. It requires a lot of vulnerability, um, for both the participant as well as everyone that's witnessing. And I would say just recently, I was facilitating a workshop um, with a group of folks who they audit certification schemes 
And so they go out into fields and they have to talk to workers pretty much every day and ask them about their working conditions. And they have to ask about abuse and forced labor and they have to uncover and be exposed to some of the darkest shadowy sides of human nature and business in general. Um, in this particular workshop, I was also, I was working with auditors who also audit organic certification schemes. And so they're also exposed to the impact on earth and with that awareness. And what was really moving um, in one of the sessions was the way in which the participant went in with the horse and simply by being really present and listening to the body language of the horse and paying attention to what was happening in their own body. When I asked her what she was experiencing, she said that she felt like she was in an interview. And why that was powerful was because we get stuck in these processes, right? Where we're just ticking the boxes. And I think for anyone that's doing work in sustainability, in work with the environment and human rights and environmental justice, there can almost be a numbing effect in order to remain whole or at least to continue doing the work without it breaking you apart. And what was so moving for me when she had said that it feels like I'm being interviewed <laughs> was that she was feeling the sense of vulnerability of having this other being with her, feeling her body, feeling her presence, checking in of whether or not she was safe with her. And, and it immediately translated to the way in which this person was then going to go out in fields and show up with, with these workers who, again, she, she's probably interviewed thousands and thousands of workers. And so often the first thought is probably not, how do I make this worker feel safe before I ask them all of these highly sensitive questions? And what was coming out of, of this session was this awareness of that actually needs to be how we're, we're leading this and how we go into all of these spaces, um, including when we're doing work around environmental impacts too. How do we go into an ecosystem and create a sense of safety in that ecosystem as a human presence, you know? And, and is that possible? And so, that's just an example that was coming to mind because it, it came up recently and it was really moving just to see those dots connect in the way that it, it will transform the work going forward. That's a great example. Explaining all that, I was thinking, how can we experience that, shall we just say, on the more micro level, on the day-to-day -day level, where do we really need to be on a horse or with a horse and a pen? I mean, is there a way that we can train ourselves to just have these small moments in life where we take a step back. We appreciate our relationship with nature, our, our vulnerability with nature, and use that to bring some lessons forward just in our day-to-day -day lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that's one of the, the beauties of this work for me is that it's so accessible 
And actually you don't have to do it with horses. The reason that I'm, I love doing it with horses and what I see happen is there's an accelerated um, process of integration that happens when we do it with the horses. And mainly because it's a somatic experience. So when it is with the horse and, and I'm there, for example, I'm able to validate what the person is feeling that is happening, that the horse is also validating. So there's this validation process that I do think is important for human development and for integration of, of a, a real shift in the way that we function. But that being said, the practice and what we're actually doing when we're with the horses is something anyone can do in any moment of their life. And it's a simple process. Um, I use several different um, practices drawn from different frameworks, but one is um, just called Four Steps to the Present, which was developed, uh, well, it's offered by Kathy Pike, who um, has the Academy of Coaching with Horses. And that is as simple as noticing what is happening in your body, where your awareness goes in your body, noticing what emotions are um, coming up for you and what sensations you're feeling and noticing the quality of your breath and just being able to practice that throughout the day in any moment can again ground you in a deeper awareness of what's happening in your body when you're thinking certain things or where your awareness is if it's not actually in your environment right around you um, and another one that i i continuously use and i've had embedded in my own life practice for the last 18 years is um, one of the heart math tools which is just a quick coherence and the heart math institute has phenomenal um, easily accessible tools to connect us with our hearts and with that one, it's as simple as slowing your breath down and just bringing your awareness into the area around your heart and taking a few minutes to just follow your breath in and out through your heart and bringing to mind a memory or a feeling of someone that you love and appreciate. And again, to bring it back to nature, I actually, before this call, I was doing a quick coherence with Mother Earth where I just was breathing through the air around my heart and bringing to mind gratitude for the trees that are exchanging oxygen with me, for the rain and the water that I'm drinking. And, and that process also is these pauses, as you mentioned so beautifully, these opportunities that we have to connect with nature, but also to bring ourselves into a present state that's going to help resource us in every area of our life. I gave me a lot to think about when you were when you were answering that question. So thank you. Um, I found myself looking at a, a very beautiful tree, just starting to change the change colors. So it was uh, I had my own moment of experiencing nature there. Um, you know, I think that what's been so nice about this conversation is that there's just been so much of the positives of you know how we can like we started the conversation, how we can use nature to become better people and better stewards. And yet we're confronted with this reality of, you know, frankly, nature being under siege. 
um, the changing climate, all that's coming with that, all the degradation that's coming as a result of human development. And so, you know, I always find myself challenged to, to find the positives in the face of so many negatives. Where do you find the positives? I mean, what, what inspires you to think not just do your work, but, but you know, live your life in a way that, that adds value to society rather than just accepting the status quo? Mm. Oh, it's such a good question. And it's such a, it's such a, I think it's a key question to walk with through our whole lives, because I feel that the way that we tend to the joy that helps, um, that helps fuel what I refer to as grounded optimism. Um, for me, it's very connected to our joy, but it's also very connected to having a process for being with grief. Um, well, after that first job that you had mentioned when I went to China and I was living in China, and I was so overwhelmed by the human impact on the planet. And I was so cynical. And it just, I, I had totally abandoned any hope that we as a species could be a positive force. And from there I went and I, I took that long walk and I, I went on the Appalachian trail and it was funny because I thought that I just needed to get back to nature. But when I got out on the trail, I realized that I'd never actually left nature um, and nature had never left me, but I had definitely left (laughs) mankind. And that walk, it, brought me back into the awareness of the kindness of strangers. Um, there's this magical thing that happens on the Appalachian Trail called Trail Angels, um, which are people that just offer these kindnesses to the through hikers without expecting anything in return. And that experience was so moving for me and has translated into the way in which I continue to walk in my life in maintaining some degree of vulnerability so that I'm open to receiving the endless amount of help and good will of humans, because it's so remarkable actually how we do show up for one another and also for the planet and for animals and for love. And so for me, I tend to that grounded optimism by first staying close to what I feel brings me joy because that gives me energy. Um, And for me, that's very much spending time outside in relationship with nature and working with the horses, but then also working with the grief as an emotion that is allowed and, and that can flow through me and tending to it as a life companion as well, because the pain that I witness in the world as a result of human impact, we can't shut that out. And either we push it down and repress it, and then we become numb, or we actually work with it. And we don't, I don't think that we have to use it in a way that pushes back or is aggressive, but instead that we can tend to it as though it's a wound and and be with it and build community 
that has capacity to be with it so that when we contend to that grief, we can also feel the love that's beneath it. That's really the source of why there's grief in the first place. And touching that love that we have for the planet, that's, I mean, that's, the, that's such the good stuff. That's the fuel, that's the life force that I think it blows apart any of the doubt that my mind might cast in terms of what, what this species is actually capable of. So there's a lot there, but I, I think it, love has a lot to do with it. <laughs> well, there was a lot there, but it was all just beautifully said. So I'm, I think that's the, the perfect ending to our conversation. And, and I just appreciate, um, appreciate all the, the really heartwarming and well-intended thoughts that you shared today. So thank you so much, Greta, for, for being part of this podcast and for the conversation today. And thank you again for the work that you're doing, um, for creating this space and inviting these these conversations and dialogues and giving nature a, a space as well for for sharing and and thriving. So thank you. You're very welcome. Take care and I look forward to many, many more conversations. Great, me too. Oh, <laughs> oh,